to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Welcome to episode 27 of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about mental health. But wait, please don't shut off the episode just yet. I promise you there will be no discussion of trust falls, therapy cats, trigger warnings, or safe spaces. In fact, the only trigger warning I will give you is to tell you that if you normally listen to the podcast with young ears present, you may want to rethink that. My guest on today's show is Lauren Rich, and well, let's just say she ain't your typical therapist. And that is exactly why Lauren is on the Public Safety Innovators podcast. Lauren's approach is so against the grain and unorthodox that you might just find her coarse and no-nonsense approach to be quite refreshing. Lauren's in-person practice specializes in male combat veterans, but she is also highly sought after as a keynote speaker for her expertise consulting with law enforcement agencies and security contractors. This will actually be session one of three total episodes with Lauren on the show. And in this episode, we will speak primarily about her work with male combat veterans and some of the similarities with law enforcement. Then in sessions two and three, we will talk purposefully about law enforcement and transition from law enforcement. Get ready. This is going to be a lot of fun. So let's just jump into the show. Welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Lauren Rich, who has become an awfully good friend of mine. And you are not the typical therapist, are you, Lauren? Well, I've had a lot of people call me a lot of names, but special is normally not one of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> special, um, special in a different context, yeah, right? Special um. <laughs> in a very different context. And, and yes, t- most definitely atypical. You will probably never see me in mainstream psychology. And there's a reason for that. And your audience is about to find out why. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's just get right after that. It's been really fun working with you and working together on on some of your marketing because we came up with some messaging that's rather unique and that's because we we're really trying to target a very specific audience. You work with male combat veterans in in your practice at least there in Oklahoma. You work specifically with male combat veterans, is that right? Yes, that is correct. 90 probably 95% of who I see is a a male combat veteran. I have a few veterans that are non-combat guys, but still sustained major trauma somewhere in their service career. And the other 5% is kind of a random hodgepodge of men who have a sex addiction or women who've sustained major trauma. It has to be a really special uh, circumstance for me to see women. I have two or three right now, and all two or three of them have suicides. Their husbands have committed suicide. And so I, I kind of make an exception. But other than that, it is primarily men and male combat veterans. Yeah. And so your goal and, and essentially what your offer is, you offer no bullshit therapy for male combat vets, right? Correct. And your ultimate goal is to help them do what? 
<laughs> my ultimate goal through five story brand coaches and lots of weeding in and out is to simply help them get unfucked. And um, so so I, I should also preface the episode with um, this one and the other two that we record are probably not kid friendly. So if you have little ears, go listen to this one and, and the next couple by yourself. Right. And so, I mean, everybody that listens to the show or knows me knows that uh, cursing isn't something that usually comes out of my my mouth very often, and neither does yours. But the point here is that we want to make sure that we were addressing um, this audience because it's important. It's really important. Most of these veterans have gone through a lot of a lot of therapists, several different therapists, and worked with the VA and not had success. And so they're really looking for something that's different. They don't want to be coddled. They're looking for for help and they want to know that somebody understands them, understands where they're coming from, understands their their language, how they speak to each other and what they're dealing with. And, and that is something that comes naturally to you. And we needed to make sure that that came out in how you market yourself and how you communicate on your your website and other marketing collateral. And so anyway, we, we wanted to get that off uh, out of the way on the podcast and, and kind of tear off the bandaid and, and uh, use that as our lead in to let everybody know what it is that you do. And so tell me more about dealing with male combat veterans and what are some of the things that, what are some of the challenges that they face that are unique to them specifically? So as far as male combat veterans go, you know, it seems like a lot of the suffering has to take place for a long time, you know, a decade or more, sometimes even two decades or more. It just depends on the person. And a lot of it is shame and guilt and all those other things that the world of psychology throws back at them. But a lot of it is that the world of psychology and the world of, of therapy is not very approachable for men. And I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy and I'll, I'll have small tangents here and there, but You know, when you look back on the progression of American culture and the 1970s feminist movement, you know, they specifically started changing the verbiage even before then. But in in that era, it was changing the verbiage from sex to gender. And instead of abortion rights, it was reproductive rights, right? So we're quote unquote all inclusive of men, but we're really not because what happened in the world of psychology, at least in my opinion, is that we first tried to feminize you. We tried to emasculate you. And we've done that in such a female dominated field that people don't even realize it anymore. And then when you wouldn't be emasculated, what did we do next? We villainized you, right? So now, congratulations to you, especially, Adam, um, white males are the perpetrators of almost everything in America from uh, yeah. bank robberies and shootings to cancer, you know, if you ask certain crowds. And so- And global warming. And glo- Oh, yes. And global warming. Oh. I can't leave that one out. So when you think about it, you know, it's very unapproachable for men. It's not male-friendly. Again, if we don't take their manhood, then we strip them of it and and we make them the bad guy. And I saw that all the time. I felt like that was so frustrating from other very well-educated providers that they would simply make comments that, let's let's say, for example, that a man and woman were getting divorced. And, and I've had this happen before. Man files for divorce and woman files for false protective order, right? And somehow women get away with things that men don't always get away with. And so I found it really helpful in session to simply ask men if the sex roles were reversed, 
what would we call that? And nine times out of 10, we would call it abusive relationships, domestic violence, or emotional, physical, or or mental abuse. And when women do it, it's perfectly acceptable. They're just women. But when men do that, they are the greatest transgressor the world has ever seen. And so it, it was almost like in the beginning that I just really bucked the system. And then I started to see it more for what I thought it was. And um, I really just got tired of the man hating. And so I intentionally opened a practice that catered to men, specifically male combat veterans, because that's my background, but men in the community who they don't have anybody specific. There is no niche area for them. There was no niche area for sex addiction. There was no niche area for men going through divorce, trauma, combat veterans, whatever that is. Everyone where I live is a quote unquote generalist, or they specialize in women or divorce or whatever it may be. And no one really took care of men. And so that was how I ended up where I am today. So it really kind of became a passion project for you, uh, not, not just <laughs> you a, know, a means to an end. I am passionate about OU football, no matter how bad they are. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know that it's a passion. I almost think it's a calling because combat trauma is one of those things where you're either made for it or you're not. You know, yeah. you either you either thrive off of it and you love it every single session of every single day or you just want to run and hide the other way. Now, I want to take a quick time out here real fast because anybody that's listening to the show up to this point, I mean, we're, we're about seven minutes in, they might be asking themselves, okay, well, this, this is a podcast for public safety as in law enforcement. We talk about private security. So why today are we talking about therapy for male combat veterans? Right. And so I want to, I want to connect those pieces together for everybody, just in case they're, they're puzzled right now going, what in the world just happened to the public safety innovators podcast, Adam's cussing. And, um, <laughs> and we're talking about male combat. Veterans. So, so let me, let me put that together. Here's why this ties together. There's a few reasons. So one, and I don't know the exact number I'm shooting from the hip here, but it's something like 30%. Maybe it's even higher than that of law enforcement are also combat veterans. Okay. So this is very relatable to the law enforcement community and is very important. The other reason why this is important or how these connect is that there are a lot, and I mean a lot of similarities between mental health for combat veterans and mental health for law enforcement officers. Lots and lots and lots of similarities. And so much so that this is actually going to be the first episode in a three-part series that Lauren and I are going to do together. And so today we're going to talk a lot about Lauren's practice in, in working with male combat veterans one-on-one, -on -one. but she also does a lot of coaching, consulting, speaking. Maybe there's other words that Lauren wants to add into that, but for law enforcement agencies in particular. And so we're going to talk about some mental health for law enforcement officers in episode two, and we're going to talk in episode three about mental health as it relates to your transition out of law enforcement into private sector employment or starting your own business, which are things that we talk about a lot on this show. And so I wanted to tie that together for anybody that was wondering, now it should be crystal clear that's the end of my time out, Lauren. So I, I wanted I wanted to make that clear to anybody before they got um, too confused here. So to get the train back on the track, if I may, I appreciate that that background explanation about the reason for working specifically with men and how their challenges are different. I want to ask you 
you've talked about men now. Let's talk about combat veterans. So what is it that they're dealing with from having been in a combat zone? What challenges are are present there that are even more unique than just dealing with the average man in therapy? Oh gosh. That's there's a that's a multivariable answer. So one thing is is that the vast majority of men that I see are, are what we would call grunts. In other words, they're 0311s out of the Marine Corps. They're infantry guys and 11 Bravos out of the Army. I was at an Air Force base a couple of weeks ago, and it was the most bizarre feeling ever. There wasn't a single grunt there, and I felt so out of place. It's just a different world. But for combat veterans, you know, you have to realize that, first of all, we are in a really lengthy war. And um, while some of them would say, quote unquote, the war is over, we're still technically engaged. It's been a struggle, I think, for a lot of people. And, and one reason for that, uh, in my opinion, is because of multiple deployments and multiple lengthy deployments. When you look at folks in the Air Force, and sometimes even the Marine Corps, Air Force especially, they're, they're three to six months. They're fairly brief when they go to the sandbox. They do their job. They come back. They're not necessarily engaging with the enemy, but their nervous system is still exposed to constant mortaring, violence, sirens, the yelling, all sorts of that living on edge type stuff for three to six months. The Marine Corps may have you there for a nine-month deployment, which is is fair and still doable. Not my favorite. I would, I would prefer nothing more than six months, but Marine Corps is still doable at the nine-month mark. And then we move to the Army and the 11 Bravos. And in the early years, it was 16 months, 18 months with maybe two weeks of R&R, which is ridiculously wow. long. It is so That's stressful hard. on your nerve. It is. It is hard. And so I have some guys who, let me put it this way. I have very few people that only deployed one time. That is the minority of my group. The vast majority of people that I see have deployed multiple times and most of them to both Iraq and Afghanistan. One of them, <laughs> just love this guy, retired army guy, did three tours to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. And he was gone so long after one of them that the, I'm just going to call them the storage people. They called him up one day and they said, hey man, you need to come get your shit. It's been three years. And he said, I'm only here on R&R and I'm going back. And so when the storage people are calling you to come get your things and your vehicle, you know you've been gone for a long time. And so by the end of a 20 or 22-year career, some of them have been gone an entire enlistment. And once you've done that, it completely changes your view of the world, how you function and operate, your belief system, your opinions about people and, and the human race as a whole. So for male combat veterans, we struggle with, first of all, simply coming home, whether coming home is immediately after the deployment or after discharge, you know, for lack of a better word. And I, I really hate it because I feel like we're talking about the prison population, you know, reintegration, <laughs> reintegration into society can be a struggle because they don't feel like they know where their place is anymore. They don't have a defined role. Their identity has completely changed, which is similar to law enforcement when you all retire. And there's a huge difference between being forced out for, let's say, a medical condition versus willfully retiring at 19, 20, 
21 years. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. Then we get into things like witnessing trauma, exposure to repeat trauma, IEDs or improvised explosive devices. And and every time one of those goes off, the brain sloshing, for lack of a better word, and the pressure that occurs in your brain changes how you function as a person. And so those things all coming back, trying to piece all of them together at once with a government-run healthcare system that lacks timeliness and effectiveness can be really frustrating for some guys. Some of the things you just shared there, like you said, you drew kind of a correlation to law enforcement. And, you know, it's been interesting to me. I've shared this with you during the period of time now that we've been working together. It's kind of funny to me because you quote unquote, hired me, right? You, you've been working with me uh, as your coach. And yet I feel like I've gotten a lot of free <laughs> mental health uh, from you because th- there are just so many correlations that as we've been discussing all of these things, it's kind of helped me piece some of the pieces of the puzzle together for myself and go, okay, so that's kind of what I've been dealing with. And, and, and some of these things that relate well to me that I just didn't recognize were there as part of just how even though I've never experienced any, what I would call real significant trauma, certainly not like these combat veterans are experiencing overseas, just the prolonged exposure to some of these things over and over and over and over and over and over and over again really changes your your view of the world and your community and the people around you, your friends, your family. It warps your perspective of humanity. And so- Oh, um, oh absolutely. And, and you know, the thing about the- <sighs> There are a lot of similarities. The one benefit or the one leg up, I think, that the military guys have over the law enforcement guys is that they actually get to leave the battlefield. But when you're in law enforcement, you live it every single day. And one of the best things I think I've decided for law enforcement officers that I've seen is to simply not live in the community where you work. If you can live 30 minutes away and commute and come be a police officer in the neighboring town or whatever that may be, that will help you tremendously because it is with you nonstop. That's a paradigm shift for sure. And I think we should Mm -hmm. talk a bit more about that. Absolutely. in, um, in our next episode where we talk more about law enforcement specifically, because there are so many law enforcement agencies out there that don't understand that, that require their police officers Mm -hmm. to live within the city limits. And like you said, I mean, that's, that's a toll on your mental health. And so it is. Um, and, we'll, and in fact, we'll I think it's quite, I, I think it's quite detrimental, but yeah, yes, let's come back to that. But I think it is quite detrimental for some officers to live in the same town where they also are policemen. Yeah. So let's talk um, a little bit more about what are these combat veterans experiencing when they get home? What does their journey normally look like as they come home and the weight of what they've just been through kind of rests on their shoulders. And how do they ultimately come to, to finally decide that they need to find some help? What is that? I mean, that's a, I know I gave you a lot there, but the, what, what happens in that period of time? What do they experience? What are some of the challenges that they face? Well, let's, let's make the assumption that they're a fairly healthy individual and that they function pretty well. Okay. Even just upon getting out, we basically lose our identity. We've always identified ourselves as the E6, E7 gunnery sergeant or, you know, the O4 lieutenant commander, whatever that may be. We're a pilot, we're a corpsman, et cetera, et cetera. And so they get out and 
sometimes the simplest struggle is that their job in the military does not translate to civilian life. And and I've had a lot of 11 Bravos, which is the infantry MOS code for the army, tell me, you know, doc, what am I supposed to put on my resume? You know, I kill people. Well, okay. Yeah. Did you kill? Sure. Yeah. Okay, fine. But that's not really what your job was. You had exceptional leadership skills. You did very well at managing people. You were flexible and adaptable, whatever that may be. But for them, it doesn't translate to anything. And so then we struggle with how do I even find a job that's something that I like and that's as fulfilling as what I once had. And my personal opinion on depression and um, PTSD symptoms is that a lot of it could be corrected if we find a job that provides purpose and fulfillment. And so a lot of them discharge or they come home or whatever that may be. Most most of the time it's discharge and we're actually in the veteran category. And they don't have a purpose anymore. And if you don't have a reason to get your ass out of bed in the morning, you will be depressed. You will continue to be depressed because there's nothing to look forward to. There is no service anymore. There is no concept of a, of a greater good, a brotherhood, so to speak. And that alone, if people can find a job that they like that's fulfilling and brings them purpose each and every day, that will counter depression and PTSD greatly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> to talk a bit more about that in, in the law enforcement term too, because again, there's this correlation. So how does that manifest itself though? I mean, we're talking about things like what exp- explosive anger issues, uh, I would assume substance abuse. What, what sort of things do you typically substance see? Substance abuse and, and alcohol are, are hand in hand a lot of times when, when they get out or discharge. And a lot of them will tell you, I didn't drink and I didn't drink heavily until I got out. And so what does that, what does that tell you? If the correlation isn't until you discharged, then you are either keeping it together and you were doing really well keeping it together while you're in, or the depression didn't set in because of an identity issue until after you got out. And, and I tell all of them, you know, especially I have a couple EOD guys that I see, which is an explosive ordinance team. And so they deal with bombs all day long and the infantry guys that there is no high than I can offer you that's legal, (laughs) that is legal in the United States that will compare to a combat or an EOD experience. That simply is not possible because you are living in fight or flight mode all the time. And so in the EOD community, the phrase is either I got it right or it's not my problem. And when you live in that mentality all the time of, well, we'll see how I do on this one. And if I don't, I'm going to go take a dirt nap you know, tell my family I loved them and and you're at peace with that each and every day that you go out, the adrenaline and the, the chemical dump alone is something that they have to work to come down from after they've discharged. And, and police work is similar in that route. Um, Mm -hmm. It may not be as intense, you know, we may not be dealing with bombs all day, every day, but it still has the same applicable theory. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you're working with veterans, how do you, how do you overcome some of those things? What do you, like, where do you start? Where do you start when they come in and they say, all right, doc, here's my story. Here's what I've done. And here's what I'm struggling with. I'm uh, screaming at my kids and my wife for no reason at all. And I'm, I'm tipping back a bottle every night and, you know, like, where I would we personally, <laughs> yeah, I would personally be overwhelmed. Not only if that was me that's experienced, I mean, obviously these guys don't know how to fix themselves. 
mm-hmm. how do you begin to untangle that mess and and correct that? Well, one thing is, is when they come in, I openly tell them that I will be as committed to you as you are to treatment. So if you think that you can leave here and not do the homework, which is rare, by the way, I hardly ever give homework. If you think you can leave here and not do the homework, or you think you can leave here and not apply to your life what we've talked about, then don't expect for things to get better. You have to actively work at what we discuss. Because the reality is, is I may have you for an hour or 90 minutes one time a week. And that's important. And we're very productive. But what you do outside of session is exponentially important to your well-being. And so the the first approach is that they have to own that it is their job to get unfucked. I am simply their guide. You can call it whatever you want. You can I can't remember if it's Yoda or whoever the other character is, but everybody has a guide basically. I tell Obi-Wan. them Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, I'm sorry. That's what Gosh, I always tell everybody. You you are you are Obi-Wan <laughs> to Luke Obi-Wan. Skywalker. Yeah. Um I I simply tell them that I am your navigator. I help you figure out where to go and exactly where the landmines are, but you are the one driving and making the final decision. And so they have to have ownership of that. And again, part of that is not wanting to emasculate people because when they come in, the last thing they want to hear is a woman telling them what to do. That does not bode well for either party. The second thing I ask them is, what are we trying to accomplish? And by that, I mean, what do we want life to look like? How will you know when you're done with me? And that's exactly how I phrase it. How will we know when you don't need to come see me on a weekly or biweekly or even monthly basis? At the quarterly visit or the biannual visit, I just call that maintenance. That's no big deal. Some people need that. Some people don't. But at a certain point, when we start off heavy, sometimes I see them twice a week for 90 minutes. Then we shift to one time a week once every other week, and then once a month. And so what are our tangible goals? How will we know when we've gotten there? In other words, they come in and we create this op order. And and op orders are in the military are all about planning, objectives, execution, and most, I think most importantly, sustainability. And so we're shooting for long-term success here because a lot of them have seen six, seven, eight therapists before me. They always feel like they leave empty-handed. And so we want to identify exactly what they want from the get-go. So that's question number two. Um, Question number three is, how bad is it? Did you lose your job because you jumped down your boss's throat? Is your wife threatening to leave you? Did you get a DUI? I have one federal officer that I'm seeing now who violated a stupid policy, in my opinion, a very stupid policy that doesn't even need to be in the books. (laughs) It's just common sense. But he did what was natural to him and what his cop training ability was and what his two-time deploying history told him to do, and he got in trouble for it. And so now he's having to figure out via force, do I want to be an officer anymore at all? And so we have to address the alcohol issue, the decades of snowballed trauma, like you were talking about. And we have to really figure out what our operational order is and how do we execute and how do we sustain that? So so those are my main three Um, topics when they come in. One, that they own it, uh, that they have to be ready. Two is where are we going? And three, how do we create that op order? Are you one of those copreneurs that's burning the candle from both ends, just trying to keep up with your calendar? I know I am. 
In this chapter of the Marketing Minute, we're going to talk about the dreaded yet so important skill of time management and the three things that helped me take control of my calendar. First one is time blocking. Time blocking simply means that you break your day into chunks of time that are dedicated to the specific tasks you have set out to accomplish. Haven't figured out your task list yet? Go back and check out chapter eight of the Marketing Minute for some tips on that. You might work on marketing collateral from nine to 11, your social media from 11 to 12, and responding to emails from one to two, for example. Regardless of whether you finish or not, you will move on to the next task at the assigned time. Number two is task batching. When task batching, you will group similar and usually smaller tasks together at a set time with the intention of completing it in its entirety, regardless of how long it takes you. For example, scheduling two 20 minute blocks to process email during the day is far more effective than checking your email every 15 minutes. Number three is day theming. Day theming is much more extreme of a version of task batching and is effective when you have several distinct areas of responsibility competing for your attention. If you're a copreneur who is still balancing a full-time job, this is a method that may be most effective for you. When day theming, you will block off an entire day for a specific area of responsibility. If your days off are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, for example, Thursday you might focus on marketing, Friday on sales, and Saturday on refining your product, whatever that may be. While bouncing around between dozens of tasks all at once may keep things exciting, it's not an effective way to manage your time, let alone run a business. Master all three of these skills and your calendar won't feel so overwhelming. Check out every episode of the Marketing Minute at psi.chat forward slash marketing minute. Tell me a little bit more then about your your background. Like, how did you how did you get into therapy, and then to being a therapist, and then all, like ultimately deciding? I mean, you told me a little bit about how, how you decided to work with men specifically, but mm-hmm. like, where did, where did, did this I all start? Where did this all start? So because, messed up. Well, yeah. you're very you're very unique. Like we've already talked about, and I, I, the average female therapist doesn't just go, you know what, I want to sit down with a bunch of male combat veterans and hear about all of their challenges and and the horrifying things that they've experienced. Because I'm sure, I'm sure there's a bit of vicarious trauma involved there. And, you know, having to listen to those things all the time. So, I mean, how does that happen? How how do you become so Well, no one, let me tell you what, no one no little kid ever wants to say, I want to grow up to be a therapist. That just is not <laughs> not on the to-do list, not on the dream jobs. So I would say one is that I always had a passion for military and law enforcement. I always loved that. When people get old, they get cataracts, right? Have your parents gotten those yet? You know anybody who's had cataracts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So normally people get those when they're old. I had them from birth and congenital cataracts in the old days, they would just blind you. We didn't have the technology that we have today. And so I was very, very lucky in that I was born in a time period where lots of surgeries and corrections could help with that. And, and I can see, but I didn't meet the requirements to join the military. Even with a waiver, there's still a standard minimum, as there should be, for vision and and physical issues, and I didn't even meet those with the waiver. 
And so then it became, if I can't join them, how do I treat them? And so Mm. looking back on that, had I joined, probably no one would have come to see me. It would have been very fruitless. You know, the military is still so stigmatized in that area that no one goes for help at all, just like in law enforcement. And so I, I really probably wouldn't have been used much at all. But I ended up searching out jobs with veterans in military and law enforcement and um, ended up at the VA in Little Rock, where I started with the homeless program. And homeless veterans will teach you a lot. It taught me a lot. It taught me that not every veteran is honorable. Not every veteran is forthright. That sometimes, well, let me put it this way. Veterans are people like everybody else just like police officers. And so Mm -hmm. that was where the foundation started. Long story short, my dad got ill. He was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so I needed to move back to Oklahoma. And it just so happens that the Oklahoma VA, where I applied and worked at for nearly seven years, required a DOT physical to transport veterans. So I took the physical, did not pass. I failed the vision exam, just like I had failed before for military entrance. And I got the job anyway. And I thought, okay, it's no big deal. They know that they approved it. My eye doctor signed off on it. Life will go on. Well, you have to re-up every two years. And so it came time for a re-up and another DOT exam, and I failed. And the doctor looked at me and she said, you have to be reassigned. You can't have this job anymore. And I said, well, I failed last time. And she said, you yeah. did? And I said, yes, I thought you knew that. She went and pulled the record and the fax machine had cut off the numbers. And so they had no <laughs> earthly idea that I had failed the vision exam and and I got the job <laughs> anyway. So they offered me substance abuse or combat trauma and I took combat trauma hands down. And so it wasn't even intentional. I didn't seek it out in any wow, way. That's interesting. Um, but it is, it's really ironic. And so the same people that I wanted to be a part of early on in life and enlist with and serve with are now the people that I get to treat because I failed a vision exam repeatedly. And so I think sometimes the universe just has a way of working things out. But I I stayed in that position for a long time and I absolutely loved it. It was, again, again I think it's a calling. I don't even think it's a passion. I think it's a calling. And uh, the more I, I got into treatment and the more that I saw combat veterans, I just... I just absolutely fell in love with them. I just don't know you how you can't not love a grunt. I really don't. And there are people who they have other niches and they would rather do sexual assault. I can't stand that. Give me combat trauma. Give me IEDs. You know, Muslim women who are shooting at you. You know, your your buddy who loses his leg or his life, whatever. I can do that all day long. No problem. And it is the most rewarding job. It's almost selfish. Yeah, it's that background certainly makes you you very unique in that uh, way and and different different than others. And I think it helps people relate to you better. And you know, one of the things that I've uh, heard in as we've been gathering testimonials and stuff for uh, your your new website is that uh, people really relate to you because your husband is a combat veteran too. And uh, so, would you say that's part of what makes you different than other therapists that are trying to? work with this sector of uh, male combat veterans or what else makes you different? I think it helps a lot. And and I say that because um, he is the type of veteran. And, and I should say, I have a family full of veterans, my brother and sister-in-law, my niece is actually still in and her husband and a bunch of army Vietnam guys and, and my grandpa as well. But when you think about how that benefits you, I see very few veteran wives, but the ones I do, they really relate well to me. And I think maybe 
the veterans themselves relate better because they understand what it's like on my end to be married to one of you. And, you know, my husband is was uh, a corpsman with 2nd Marine LAR, which means that he was out of Camp Lejeune. And um, light armored reconnaissance is really that tip of the spear when it comes to recon. So they don't stay or go anywhere for very long. So he did an Iraq tour in 03 in, in Mosul with the initial push. Um, that was in March. And then by August, he was in Liberia for the overthrow of Charles Taylor in North Africa. And then by the following April, he was back in Haiti for the overthrow of Papa Doc. And so you have to understand that when you have that personal experience and you know somebody who's been through those things, it makes it a lot more applicable. You can maybe decipher things a little bit better with the veteran. Sometimes I, (laughs) you know, sometimes I just have to laugh because my husband will do something. And um, if I make a comment in a therapeutic way, he'll say, don't therapize me. I'm not one of your (laughs) veterans. But then if I don't make the comment, he'll say, why aren't you doing your job? This is <laughs> this is your job to unfuck me. And so, you know, can't win for trying in that realm. But he's like a lot of them who he doesn't wear veteran garb. If it wasn't for, you know, the high fade, the walk, the command hand and everything else that's demeanor driven, you would never know, quote unquote. But a lot of them just want to come back and, and not be acknowledged. They want to not talk about it. They want to move on with life, you know. Hmm. Um, so that's, I, that's an interesting that point you make there. That's, yeah. that's really interesting and not something I ever really thought of as, as it relates to veterans is those who you see walking around wearing veteran garb versus those who don't. And what is, mm-hmm. what is that distinction? What, what changes that? Is that part of an acceptance or what? I think part of it's just simply humility, because if you ask my husband and a number of guys that I see, if you ask my husband or, or if there's a comment or something. If another veteran makes an entitled comment, my veteran will look at you and he'll say, you fucking signed up for that. Don't complain about it because you signed up for it. You knew good and well when you signed the dotted line what you were getting into. And to a certain extent, that's true. Just because we go into it with eyes wide open doesn't mean we always see what's coming. Okay, so keep that in mind. But again, service in law enforcement, IMSA, firework, whatever that may be, and and in military service especially, it has to, has to remain a privilege. It has to be a privilege. If you move away from that and your mentality and somehow your service becomes a right, then we become Mm -hmm. entitled. And that's a big problem. Or if it's something that you're doing because you want the attention, you you want the praise, right? It's it's rooted in a lack of humility. Yes, not truly out of service. And and anytime we make that paradoxical shift that something is a right and that we have the right to serve and we become entitled, then we become victims of what happens to us. And that's Mm. not a good place to live. And so then you'll see, and and I have to call these guys out sometimes, and I I did in the Vet TV series, the the people who wear the disgruntled veteran hats or the medicated veteran hat, or that's what their screen name is. Again, you signed up for that. No one forced you to serve. And second of all, it is a privilege to serve, and not everyone gets that privilege. And when you take that for granted and it becomes a right, then we have even bigger problems. Yeah. Well, that's. 
that's a whole nother rabbit trail right there. <laughs> it is. It is. Sorry, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I agree that. with you. It, it, no, it's okay. I mean, it is, it is a privilege and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about serving in the military or like you said, serving in law enforcement. It really, mm-hmm. it really is a privilege. It's not something everybody is cut out for. It's not something yep. everybody can do. And although to serve comes with um, some challenges and sometimes trauma, um, it is a privilege. And if we are looking at it in that way, I think that mindset, doesn't that help overcome some of that trauma that we experience? Oh, absolutely. Because we're fighting the victim mentality. And and that's a lot of what, in my personal opinion, the world of psychology breeds. Because you have to remember, well, okay, let me back up here. So one thing is, yes, it breeds a victim mentality when we don't stay in that place of service and, and that other people would have happily served if they could, like me, for example. But when you allow your environment to make you a victim, it is really hard to get out of that. And I don't know that people know this. I didn't know this until the last couple of years and I started researching, but the roots of psychology and Freudian psychoanalysis in the early 20th century actually date back to a little bit of Marxism. And I'm mm. I'm not a nut. Don't get me wrong. I will give you the, the links so that you can put them in the show notes so that people can go fact check me. But post-Bolshevik revolution, there was a group of people who moved to Germany and they opened what they call the Frankfurt School. The school was originally called the Institute for Social Research. And because Marxism had not taken root in Western Europe through the working class, they made the shift and they combined Freud's psychoanalysis with Marxism. And they created what we call critical theory. And in critical theory, it's basically a destruction of everything. They don't agree with anything. They don't support anything. They just want to tear everything else down. And that's where terms like political correctness and identity politics come into play. And so you can see how this is a huge struggle. And the world of psychology promotes that when we put everybody in a demographic class or everybody is a victim, one, we're not promoting healing. Okay. And number two is that we're really taking away from people who are truly victims. And that's mm-hmm. a big issue that, that uh, you know, you have to want better for yourself. If you choose to live in the woe is me mentality, you will get nowhere. But again, the world of psychology, to a certain extent, pushes the woe is me mentality. And you can see that in how, yeah. how culture has moved and changed. And let me tell you what, they don't cover that in grad school with you. They don't tell you that Marxism and Freudian psychoanalysis were combined. They don't ever tell you that. You have to figure that out on your own, if ever. And so what ultimately ended up happening was uh, they create the school in Germany. Uh, They don't want to call it the Marxist school, so they call it the School for Social Research. And then guess who comes into play in the 1930s? Hitler. 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 And Hitler takes over and runs them out of the country. And so where do they end up? They end up at Columbia University, where they still are today. And so the original five, I'm going to You're going to get my show banned, Lauren. I know. You better be careful. (laughs) You're going to end up in a re-education camp by the time we're done. Um, The original five or six people of this think tank, three of them were psycho 
analysts. They were already practicing therapists. And so they took this concept and they merged the two. And the entire purpose was to destroy Western culture and civilization and use Marxism to do that through sociocultural means, no longer the working class since the working class attempt had failed. And so now they are in America in the 1930s. They, they Some of them do go back and forth, I believe, to Germany over time. But they've made great progress in tearing apart Western cultures and belief systems. And that's where that comes from. And I still, to this day, I've never heard another therapist talk about it. I've never heard or read anything about it in textbooks. And if you Google it, Mm. you're going to get some garbage answer that doesn't tell you the truth. So you need to go to DuckDuckGo or whatever that may be. And I will give you three or four links that you can put in show notes so that people can go fact check. But that is the reality. That is the reality of the world of psychology, in my opinion. And I'll be honest, I don't know how I even ended up here. I really don't some days (laughs) when I think about their belief system and my belief system. I don't know how I tolerate, but I think I just grew so attached to helping people. And the people are what keep you there despite the modality and the mission of the field, so to speak. Well, there you have it. Lauren's dropping truth bombs here on the show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I no, that's an, that's that's a lot of uh, that's important insight to have, and I think the it challenge is, is that is. most people they wouldn't even think to try to do that research no. on their own. We no, just they have no idea. The, part of the political correctness that we deal with is you just have to do what you're told. And and when somebody shares with you that this is the way it is, you're just supposed to accept that. Um, yes. And, so, and that's a huge yeah. problem in the veteran community because they know the reality. And so when you have people, let's say, for example, like Marie Harf, who was under the Obama administration and worked for the State Department when Benghazi happened, she stood up there behind the podium one day, and I will never forget this. She made a statement that the Muslim world was violent because they don't have job opportunities. How ignorant. Good grief. How ignorant. Good grief is, yes, is all I can say. And so if you, you know, then veterans come back and they say, what is wrong with people? How do they not see what I see? How do they not understand that that part of the world is simply violent because it is a religious driven um, Mm -hmm. or religious ideology? It is not even a cultural issue. Yes. And so then we end up dumping millions, billions of dollars into countries that they don't have the same values and and ideals that we do. And so then people come home and they not only hate the enemy, they hate the culture. And sometimes they end up hating the government because of what the government, A, exposed them to and B, how the government responded. And so you may talk to veterans who say, I didn't have a problem going into Iraq. You may talk to another one who said, I didn't have a problem going in, but I didn't think we should be there. Or you may have a third that says, I didn't think we ever belonged there. And it was none of our business. Mm -hmm. So not only are we having to cope with new identity, new job, substance abuse, relationship issues, but then we're having to put together the pieces of the puzzle of why I'm so angry at society and no one gets it. (laughs) No one sees what I see. I totally understand that. I totally do. I I was frustrated by that in law enforcement too. It's like everybody had this mindset. I mean, we we struggled so hard to get the resources that we needed in order to to Mm -hmm. really address the crime that we were seeing in our community. And people were like, oh, you don't need that. There's not that much crime here. And we're like, no, you guys are nuts. Like, why don't you guys see what's going on right here? Mm -hmm. But 
after I left law enforcement and I live in the same community I used to police in, I'm not connected to it anymore. And I can kind of now see how people didn't see what was going on. It really enlightens me to how, you know, I was just so frustrated at the time going, why do you guys not see it? It's right there in front of you. Well, you know, if you're not dealing with it every day, you're not the one that's there. You're not the one that's in it. You're not Mm -hmm. the one that's seeing it and addressing it, but it can create this almost hostile outlook towards your own community because you just like, you will end up hating people blinders off, you know? Yes. Yes. And, and for law enforcement, the better phrase or the phrase that I use is you deal with the worst 5% of people every single day, but for you, it's 100% of who you deal with. And you will notice that in people's careers as they shift and they go longer and longer. I had one state trooper come see me for a while and he said, um, I think at year 12, I, I think I need to consider something different. And, I, and, and so I asked what happened and he had pulled this guy over and it is maybe 730 in the morning. And he said, I pull him over and I see that he's wearing no shirt. He's been drinking. And he said on the camera, on the recording, he it, the recording catches the officer saying, <sighs> GD. Gosh, darn it. But, uh, you know, another word. And um, he said, I already know this is going to be bad. It's 730 in the morning. He's drinking. He has no shirt on and we're on the interstate. There is nothing good that's going to come out of this. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times when you've lived that 100% of bad all the time, your mind ends up filling in the blanks before you even get there. You're already assuming that people are bad, distrustworthy or untrustworthy, that they have malice in them, that they are up to no good, whatever that may be, because that's been your past experience. And that's the thing is that therapy works to challenge some of those belief systems. And so, again, part of my issue with the world of standard psychology is, oh, the world is a safe place. You know, let's challenge that. What a load of crap. If you've ever worked in law enforcement or deployed, the world is not a safe place. And so a lot of the therapies, two in particular that I have a problem with, and and I'm trained and certified in them, don't get me wrong, but they will try to argue those points with veterans and say, the world is a safe place. You're overreacting. Well, my past experience tells me that the world is not a safe place. So how do I get my body to calm down when I truly am at low risk versus when I am at high risk, if my body doesn't know the difference. And so sometimes we simply have to work on just getting your nervous system to calm down. One of the the benefits that I've seen is that um, when we do imagery or guided imagery practice, whatever that may be, I don't use the word safe anymore. And my first question is, do you even think that there is such a thing as a safe place? And a lot of times they say no. And so I, my suggestion is replace the word safe with the word secure and think about it as if it were an AOR, and that that stands for area of responsibility. And so even in a war zone, areas can be secure, so to speak. Even in shootout in Chicago, areas can be secure. And so if we just acknowledge that the world is not a safe place, I think we could get a lot farther with people than where we do now. That's a huge paradigm shift. I love that Um, and totally resonates with me. I would agree with you 100%. Now, you've been talking about this challenge of overcoming some of the the accepted principles of, of current day therapy. And you've been working really hard to put out some content to address that and, and sort of over, overcome that. Now, you mentioned a little bit ago about your series on Vet TV. Let's talk about that for a few minutes and then let's we'll wrap this uh, session up so that we can go into session two. So tell me about the series on Vet TV. 
So Vet TV is a veteran-owned, privately-owned uh, television production company in Southern California, and they specialize in dark humor for veterans. And so it is a very specific niche audience. Other people find it highly, highly offensive, and I can see why they do. But for those of us who've, who've been through those traumas or understand that world, a lot of it is pretty comical. And so they had one series called A Grunt's Life, and it's about a Marine Corps infantry officer. I believe he's a lieutenant. And um, I started using that in session for some people, depending on what the trauma was and who the person was and how much they could tolerate. We'd go watch a clip and then we'd talk about the character and what they struggled with. Because I found that it's so much easier when I say, this is what the character is really struggling with. And this is the thought process. I'm not pointing a mm. finger directly at anybody. Yeah. Okay, so it's not nearly as personal. It gives um, them the opportunity lady- to think through that themselves a bit. Yes, yes. That lady isn't talking to me. She's talking about the character. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would use that in session and it it was pretty beneficial. And then I started doing some YouTube videos. I was, oh gosh, the good old days. I was social media free for 11 years until I opened my private practice. And then I made the mistake of going back. And um, so I emailed them for uh, copyright permission and they said, well, why don't you just come out and we'll do the entire series? So we filmed the entire character analysis and it's on YouTube on on their channel. And uh, the, the series is actually called Mental Hell and Wellness. And so it takes Lieutenant Murphy's character in, in Afghanistan and it breaks it down to his cognitions, his dissociations, the violence that he thinks about, the sexual depravity that he thinks about, all of those kinds of things. I have been overwhelmingly surprised at the positive feedback, the amount of veterans that have reached out. I probably get at least one to two a week that either email or call me to share a comment, to talk about therapy, to try to find a provider, whatever that that may be for them. But it has it has been really a really positive response. And so, I mean, I would just encourage people to, uh, you know, it, it can go check that out. You can either go to YouTube and check it out, or um, mm-hmm. it's actually, if you go to Lauren's website, laurenrich.net, and you go to The Brief, which is kind of her all things media, if you will. So there's there's blog articles on there. There's her YouTube channel on there, as well as the Vet TV channel. And th- that specific series is on there. So you can go check it out there. And people have made comments. Some of the videos are at over 65,000 views, which, you know, when you think about how niche the audience really is, that's that's a pretty good response rate. Yeah. You know, I've seen comments in the the uh, the section from firemen and from police officers and from paramedics that say, I'm a Leo, I'm a fireman, and this is still so applicable. Um, yep. Thank you for this. Or I'm a veteran and I'm in law enforcement. Thank you for this, whatever it may be. And so even though it's it's a different context, trauma is trauma in that regard. And so you'll be able to pull things from the series that will be applicable to you in your current situation. Awesome. And then you also have on your website, you have another resource available for folks called the FUBAR assessment. If you can just tell everybody what that's all about so that they can go check it out if that's something that they want to do. Sure, sure. So the FUBAR is pretty simple. It's uh, maybe 10 questions, two minutes to just kind of gauge how fucked up we really are um, because everybody walks in the door and thinks that they're the most fucked up of all. And so it's questions about nightmares or alcoholism, relationships, sex, 
you know, transitioning and, and, and I think probably one of the most important questions, numbness and detachment. And so we can kind of at least get an idea of where people are before they walk in the door, before they're ready to commit to an appointment. Because like we said in the beginning, men especially will suffer for 10, 15 or 20 years before they actually go see somebody. And so the little, you know, that small step of taking the FUBAR assessment can get a dialogue going or it can make them feel more comfortable or understand at least where they are in regards to severity. And after, after people take the assessment, they get kind of, uh, an outcome, right? It's, it's scored. And then they're, they're told kind of, here's, here's kind of generally where you land. And then you're giving them some tips that, Hey, based upon the way you answered this assessment and where you fall, here's some things that you can do, some actionable tips that you can do right now to try and see some improvement in the things that the challenges that you're facing, right? Yes. And and that's also a big deal because I have seen people before who they have been in therapy, no kidding, for years, and they have felt zero progress. And that is not okay. And I will say there are therapists out there who will take you on, even though they have no business treating you because they would just rather have the money. If you can do one thing for yourself, it's the fact that you need to find a specialist. Go find somebody who has military, law enforcement, uh, first responder, EMSA experience, has training in it, or has specific trauma treatment knowledge. Because we don't want to go see Joe Schmuckatelli who treats postpartum depression for law enforcement trauma. Right. That's a bad idea. And so I've seen people who, again, they have been in therapy for years and seen nothing productive out of it. And that's so frustrating. When they come in as a first-timer, as a provider, I'm not only upset because they have wasted their time, but I'm upset because now someone else in the field has given them the wrong impression of what treatment should be like. And it just makes it more and more difficult for you to put the pieces back together once they finally make it to you, I imagine. It can. It can. That is very true. All right. Well, so that, that FUBAR assessment, that's available to anybody, regardless of whether they are in your area or not in Muskogee. Did I say mm-hmm. that right? Muskogee? Muskogee, mm-hmm. Oklahoma. It. Um, it's where you're at and that's where your practice is, where you see people one-on-one. But that FUBAR assessment, anybody can go and take it. It's not just for people there locally. So please you know, do that. Connect with Lauren. Any final thoughts? Let's We'll wrap up this session. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover in this session before we go end this and uh, leave everybody hanging until the following week when they can (laughs) check out session two. (laughs) I would say they are always welcome to call or email me if they need to find a good provider in their area. That sometimes is the hardest struggle is finding somebody who's quality. And um, I have a network of providers across the country. We have a listserv. They're trauma, trauma-informed, quote-unquote. They have military or first responder experience. And so I have two lists of about 500 clinicians nationwide that all I have to do is say, I have a referral in Tehachapi, California or Rochester, New York. I need a qualified provider, VA, non-VA, whatever that may be. And then people get back to me with names. And it's, it's that easy. So we can get you somebody of quality fairly quickly. All you have to do is tell me where. Awesome. Well, definitely connect with Lauren Rich for those resources. Lauren, tell everybody where they can find you. Sure. Uh, LaurenRich.net, Lauren Rich LCSW on YouTube, and um, a re-education camp near you. 
<laughs> all right that's a good sign off all right so lauren it's been awesome having you on the show so far and we'll get you again here on session two everybody else just remember as always stay innovative Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review at psi.chat forward slash review. I would love to hear your feedback and it will also help other public safety innovators like yourself find the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to psi.chat, click on episodes and search this episode number and you'll find all the links, descriptions and resources we talked about. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and you'll be notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.